And we have to ask ourselves as, as, as managers, are we training and developing people who own what they're doing? You know, future leaders, they don't have to be the next chief executive, but people who own what they're doing and whatever happens, if stuff goes wrong, they own it. They don't just pass it up the chain saying, not my problem. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we have to ask ourselves, are we training fleets? And there's too many managers out there who don't get rule number one, who are just training fleets. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today's guest is Peter Anderton. He's an executive coach, and he spends a lot of his time working with teams to make sure that they can go further and faster by creating clarity in their goals. We originally got introduced to Peter based on his TEDx talk, uh, which is titled, Great Leadership Comes Down to Only Two Rules. And it has been viewed over a million times and now is being used in MBA programs around the world. I was gonna talk about what the two rules are, but I think it's better that I leave the surprise Uh, and let you listen in on the conversation. It's definitely fascinating, and we talk about it in a lot of detail. Uh, But in addition to that, we talk about a few other things. We talk about how as leaders, we can inspire people on our team to own projects and feel confident to come up with solutions to different problems. Uh, If you find this episode helpful to your leadership journey, send us a note. You can DM me on Twitter. My handle is at Aiden, at A-Y-D-I-N. You can tag us with the hashtag supermanagers. And of course, we're creating a Slack community. If you want to hang out with other supermanagers, if you want to give us feedback on episodes, you want to talk about the content, recommend future guests, uh, send us a note, supermanagers at fellow.app. And if you send us a note, we'll bring you into the community. It'll be lots of fun. We look forward uh, to hang out with all of you more. Now, without further ado, here's Peter Anderton on episode 83 of the Super Managers podcast. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Aiden. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to dig in with you. You've uh, had an extensive leadership career, and you're an NLP master practitioner. And a chartered fellow of the CIPD, as well as a chartered engineer, and today you're director at Internal Alignment. I have to ask, what is an NLP master practitioner? It sounds awesome. A- anytime you have the word master in your title, <laughs> I feel like that's that's really cool. It's like Six Sigma with black belt, isn't it? It sounds. Uh... So no, all it is. So the whole idea of NLP, it's neuro linguistic programming, and it's really just modeling what works in terms of communication and thinking. And, and there's been some really useful ideas, some really useful studies that have done have come from it that I use on an ongoing basis in, in a lot of the coaching work that I do. 
because particularly when we're looking at change, a lot of it is driven by our subconscious thinking. You know, only, only a fraction of what we do is driven by our conscious thinking. So when you're working as a coach, it's really important to be able to deal with the subconscious stuff as well. And I find the NLP is really helpful for that. That's amazing. You know, it's it's interesting. Like the first time I, I got exposed to NLP is uh, I happen to be a Tony Robbins fan and uh, he talks a lot about NLP. What's involved in in becoming a master practitioner? Is this like 10 years of coursework? So uh, it maybe it's, it's more accessible than you might think. So there's the first level that you come across is practitioner training. And there's all sorts of different versions of it that take place. So the practitioner training I did was an accelerated one where you had to listen to, oh, how many, it's so long ago now, I don't know, something like 70 hours of instruction before you came to the program. Oh, wow. And then, and then it was a seven day intensive, something like, something like along those lines. The master practitioner one that I did was perhaps the more, the more traditional route where it was a whole sequence of two day programs that ran over, I'm trying to think, how many do we have? It's probably something like 24 days worth of training or something like that. So it's not like you've done a degree or anything like that, but you've obviously spent a considerable amount of time on it and done some project work that are associated with it. But in all honesty, it was a while ago, so I forget. So don't, don't you know, if anybody's out there quoting me on these numbers, I'm sure somebody could put me straight. But it, it's a substantial amount of time, but it's not like doing a degree. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. It's, it's something that maybe I will check out at some point. But let's talk about the early days. So, you know, you obviously, you know, you coach a lot of executives, you work with a lot of leaders. Uh, When you first started leading a team yourself, do you remember some of the early mistakes that you tended to make? Oh, well, yeah. So (laughs) where do you start? I can remember there were two levels, actually. So I actually started off uh, as a, I I kicked off as an engineer. So I'm a chartered engineer, as you mentioned at the outset. And I worked for ICI, which sadly is a company which exists no more, but was once a sort of a global super super giant. And I was an internal consultant working with a whole range of teams. And what I learned there, so I, I didn't have any line management responsibility there, but I learned to influence teams when I had no authority over them whatsoever in order to make things happen, in order to get things done. And that was a really, really important part of my learning. Probably the biggest mistake I made there, and I was talking to somebody about this just yesterday, is that I was so desperate to get projects because, you know, the only thing that's worse than too much to do is not enough to do. I was so desperate to get projects. I was convincing people to do projects they didn't really want to do. And, And actually, I've never forgotten that lesson because I wasted so much time and caused so much frustration for myself trying to drive things that people didn't really want. I knew they would make their lives easier. I knew it would make a difference to the bottom line, but because the senior leaders weren't really that interested in them, it was a waste of time and effort. And all the time now when I'm working with senior leaders, it's really critical to make sure that whatever it is they're driving, there is that real appetite for it within the organization. Otherwise there's a lot of wasted effort. But when I became a line manager, my first role, I was there. I don't know if you have these over in Canada, but, uh, the um, uh, the first role I ever had was the man who made. I was the man who made mini cheddars. I think that's probably a very UK brand, isn't it? Yeah, these I haven't little, heard that. You haven't heard. So they're they're like these little small cheese biscuits that you have, but they, you have them like like a crisp packet or a potato chip packet, I guess you guys would say over there. And uh, and I was responsible for making and uh, making those. And I the I was I had a team of about two teams 
of about 30 or 40 people. And I'd never managed anybody before in my life. And it was, it was quite, it was quite a shift for me. And they were, I had a team full of, and you'd, you'd have to be in this environment to understand it. So there's a team full of really hard factory women. That's kind of how I would describe them. And if you go back like 20, 20 years ago, what used to happen in a lot of environments where if you had men uh, swearing in front of women, they'd apologize to the women. You know, the environment I was in was so rough that if the women would turn around and discover I was there, they'd be apologizing to me for the way that they were talking. So it was proper rough stuff, but they were, they were just absolutely fabulous. And the thing that I got right in the first role with Mini Cheddars was not just telling people what to do and driving the change, but engaging people in it so that the change was actually their change. Where I went wrong was when I moved on to the next line. So I was, I was brought in as the, the young hotshot who would show people how things were done. That was the initial plan. So there were big expectations for me. And I was put in charge of the, the problem line in the factory, which was the chocolate hobnob line, which I'm guessing probably doesn't translate to Canada either, actually. So, so it's kind of like an oat biscuit with a chocolate coating on it. And the two managers before me had left, both of them, with nervous breakdowns. Uh, and I was young enough and arrogant enough to think, you know, that won't be a problem. I'll be absolutely fine. I can nail this, sort it. And I nearly completely cracked up throughout that whole process. And the biggest mistake I made was thinking that I was the one that had to have all of the answers. And I thought it all depended on me. And when I look back, you know, that was, that was for me was the ultimate failure of rule number one, which I know you want to talk about in a moment, is I thought... It's all about me and my ideas. It's all about my way of doing things. It's all about my solutions. And the pressure is on this expectation as this hot shot is going to show them how things are done. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And that was the biggest mistake possibly that I've ever made from a team perspective. Well, now we have to dig in more onto that. So, so this is, so this is rule number one, because you have these, uh, two rules of leadership. And obviously, as you mentioned, the first rule is that it's, it's not about you. So I'm curious, did you realize this mistake during your time on that line? So how, how did you turn it around? Or did it come to you much later? Much later. So um, I, uh, I, for me, that, that one of the hardest things I ever did. So at that point in the role, I actually turned around to the management team and said, I can't do this. Is, is there another role I can do? And, and, and whilst on one level, the engineer in me knew the facts, I'd done all the calculations, it, it wasn't a sustainable situation. They slowed the whole production line and replaced me with two people. So I, I felt vindicated, but the bottom line was I had to put my hand up and said, I can't do it. And uh, it was probably years later, genuinely years later, that the penny finally dropped as I reflected back on it and the mistakes that I'd actually made. So it wasn't an immediate thing at all. It wasn't an immediate thing at all. Yeah. So tell us more. So this, um, the rule, it's not about you. So what does that mean in practice and like, what should people do? It's really the starting point for all things leadership. You know, we, we can make the mistake that we think it, it's all about our ideas. It's all about our way of doing things. It's all about our ego. Now that's, that's often what happens. And that hugely gets in the way on two levels. First of all, it causes huge problems for the team. Because you get to the point that the team is like, well, there's no point having any ideas. There's no point trying to do anything differently because actually it all has to be done your way uh, and with your preferences. And they just get to the point that they stop 
they stop thinking. So you end up with a scenario where you've um, you've just conditioned a bunch of people to wait for the next drips of wisdom to come from your mouth. And other than that, they're not owning anything. They're not taking a proactive approach. They're just waiting. And you become the bottleneck for your team in, in that situation. But the second level where it's a real problem is just the massive pressure you put on yourself when you're in that scenario. When you think, when you, when you don't understand it's not about you, you think you've got to have all of the answers and the pressure that creates. There's a, there's a lot of managers, senior managers out there under a huge amount of pressure. And much of it comes from the environment in which they find themselves. But a huge amount of it is totally self-generated because we think we're the one that needs to have all of the answers. So in terms of how it manifests itself, there's, oh, you know, where, where do you start? Let, let, me, let me ask you a question then, Aidan. If you reflect back on, uh, on managers that you've had in the past, okay, uh, can you think of, say, um, the, the, don't name names at this stage, you could get yourself in a lot of trouble, the worst manager you've ever had? Does, does somebody spring to mind? Um, so, you know, th this is an interesting, uh, this is an interesting question because I've had a, I've had a largely entrepreneurial career where I haven't had a lot of managers. Um, but I've worked with a lot of people. Uh, so <laughs> I'll answer that question that way. Okay. Yeah. Let's take it from that angle. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everybody's worked in an organization where they've had this like superstar manager, or at least, you know, I've, I, I've been fortunate to. Uh, work with people like this. Like I'm talking absolute superstar. Everybody will kind of wants to work and learn from them. But they also, because they're so great and they know so many things and, you know, they're absolute geniuses, they tend to like really walk into meetings and, and suggest, you know, how things should be done. And they know everything that is wrong with uh, whatever idea that is proposed. And so it's a, it's a very interesting kind of scenario because, uh, you know, obviously, like, w what an amazing, you know, asset, you know, such a person is to, to the organization. But it does, it can have the effect of, like, making it so that people on the team don't end up, how do I say this, even if they're they're strong performers, they might not feel smart enough or good enough to be able to perform, even though they may be excellent at what they do. Um, and so that's a scenario that I have witnessed. And I'm curious, like, uh, if, if your rule applies here, and how do you get an external party, a superstar manager, to kind of, uh, you know, understand and, and learn about that? And that's where, I mean, that's what rule number one is really key and rule number two is really key on that. We'll, we'll come back to that one later. T take that superstar manager, because very often we find that you know, usually people get promoted because they're really good at the job that they're doing <laughs> rather than because they're brilliant with people and they know how to lead them and, and, and how they can make a real difference there. But take, take the example of the, the superstar, let's call them superstar individual, that they've got brilliant ideas, they know how stuff should be done. They tend to perhaps end up picking other people's ideas to pieces, whether they do that, you know, inadvertently or not. And they leave people behind them feeling like they're not very confident and, and, and actually I don't get it. I'm not very good at what I'm doing. Often, you know, managers in that situation, they can be micromanagers, can be a real problem. Uh, and then you can start, you can start to go down the list and start to say, well, actually, do you know what? The worst people I've ever worked with, for example, or managers I've ever had, they didn't listen. 
You know, they, they, there's a number of things that you could work through. So it was, it was all about their ideas. They picked other people's ideas to pieces. They didn't listen. They took the praise when praise was being given. But when there was blame, actually, they had very sloppy shoulders and it went somewhere else. You could start to write a bit of a list. And, and, and often when I'm working with a group of people, we, we can create that list really, really quickly. Let's just flip it around for a moment and think about some of the best you've ever worked with. So you're recognizing that, yeah, okay, in a context, these are super individuals. What about the people that everybody wants to work with and for where their confidence grows as a result of working with them? Are there any characteristics that come to mind for you about you know, these managers that would actually be well, super managers? What sort of characteristics would you pick up? I think I think one of the traits, uh, if we're to look at it from this lens, is just uh, you know this concept of like feeling important and feeling that you are successful uh, in the team, as in like meaning that you feel that you are contributing and you're an important part of the team. If you left that team, like the team would be worse off. But but I mean in a like you feel like you're a desired and valued member of the team and, and you are being successful in your role. That's a brilliant example. So that's that's sort of the output of what the brilliant manager does. The individuals in the team, they feel valued, they feel like they're contributing, they feel like you know they're there for a reason and they've got meaningful work to do. What are the kind of things that they're doing that enable the people in their team to feel that way? Is it stuff again like, well, actually they're listening to them. They're asking for their input. They're actually going running with their ideas. Does, does that make sense? Those kind of things come through. Uh, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I, th- I, I think those are all. Yeah, yeah, those are really important things because yeah, if you just walk in, and it's a hey, you know, this is literally. I, I will write out a twenty-step process that you are going to follow. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, and if you do that, you're going to get the desired outcome. That doesn't feel very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. So so if you just think sort of mentally about these two columns that we've created, like the worst manager, it's all about their ideas. They pick other people's ideas to the pieces. They don't listen. And it leaves people actually lacking in confidence, not feeling that they can really do it or, or, or make stuff happen without the leader. You know, the, the best ones actually, you know, that that the people want to work for them and they want to work with them because they listen to them, they'll ask for their advice, they get their input, they trust people to get on with their work. And as a result, they end up feeling valued and part of the team and a really important part of the process doing meaningful work. If you start to work down those two lists and the impact that it has on the individual, what the question you first have to ask for the for the for the worst manager, first question you would ask here is where is the focus of their attention, the worst manager? Is it on the people around them? Is it on the team or is it on themselves? Where is the worst manager focused? This is probably a spectrum, right? Like I think uh, everybody would uh, have scenarios where they might operate in, in a certain way or not. But I, but I think like, you know, a lot of times it might not be uh, at least like, hey, I'm focused on, on me necessarily, but it's like, I, I think it might come from a place of good intention where it's like, no, I'm focused on, uh, the work in the sense of like, my, my goal is to, to get to the desired outcome. And so if I'm like participating in it and I want the goals to be achieved in, in this personal view, like maybe the intent is actually, no, I'm just operating in the way that I believe that is going to lead to us, uh, in the shortest amount of time to get to, to the right outcome. So I think like a lot of times it comes from a good place, but 
Um, but, but, but I do think that like, uh, you know, it's, it's a more short-sighted way of looking at things. I, I, I think that's a really powerful point, Aidan, because this is never about, and I think when we were chatting earlier, this is not about our oh, managers are terrible human beings. That's just nonsense. You know, whatever's happening, whether you're a good manager or a bad manager, usually it's coming from a positive intent. Now I, I completely get that and agree with that. What I would say is, though, the managers that are you know, the poor managers, not the super managers, uh, are the ones who typically they micromanage, they don't listen. It's about their ideas. They create an environment where their team lose confidence. The focus of those managers is on themselves. Whereas if you shift to the other spectrum and you say, well, what about the good managers who actually they listen, they seek advice, they trust people to get on and do stuff? And they'll work with the team and collaborate with the team and make sure that they feel a valued part of their team and they're doing meaningful work. The focus of their attention is on the team, not on themselves. And, and you can very quickly, so you start to write a list of you know, the good and the bad, if you like. You recognize that the ultimate distinction between the two is rule number one. But all of this stuff, it doesn't matter what you write in the list of the poor managers. If anybody's listening and watching this, just goes away and says, right, I'm going to write this list. Worst bosses I've ever had. Here's the stuff. Okay. It's quite cathartic to get it out. You can feel a lot better when you've done it. Do the same for the best manager. Okay. And you will find, you'll look down that list and you'll realize, oh my goodness, the difference is rule number one. Rule number one is the connecting factor that actually distinguishes between the worst bosses anybody's ever had and the best. Every single time. And, you know, you can relay this back to all sorts of aspects. You can relate this to teachers. You can relate this to colleagues. You can probably relate this to clients as an entrepreneur. There's a whole range of aspects you can bring on this. But the worst ones, they're totally focused on themselves. They don't get rule number one. The best ones, actually, they're focused on those around them and they do get rule number one. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, what's interesting is, uh, and, I, and I like that it's called rule number one. And I've heard of different frameworks, not in the context of management and leadership. I uh, was once exposed to this uh, investing philosophy where it, it's literally called rule number one. And then rule number two is don't forget rule number one, <laughs> which is, uh, I wanted to say that you know, with rule number one, uh, for, I guess, uh, you know, it's not about you. If we just focus on that and if rule number two was, don't forget about rule number one, I think people would be in a really good place. Like, I think like that is a, you know, that's a big jump forward. And I think like that in itself would be positive, but there's an actual rule number two though. There is a, yeah, it's almost a disappointment, isn't it? But cause you could say, I mean, there's a, uh, one of the versions I've heard of that is rule number one, don't take yourself too seriously. Rule number two, always remember rule number one. But actually, you know, don't take yourself too seriously fits in perfectly with rule number one as I put it forwards as well. But yes, there is there is a rule number two. And um, I'm going to link back to something you said earlier on about you could have these brilliant people who uh, they've got all the answers, they know how to do things, they're full of amazing ideas. But all that happens is the people that work for them end up almost losing confidence because it's always about their ideas and their approach. There's a, there's a video on YouTube that's actually an advert for PlayStation 2. Now, I'm going to suggest it's possibly one of the most powerful leadership video clips you could ever see. Oh, wow. what, it has to do, what it has to do with PlayStation 2, I have no idea. It's only about 40 seconds long, worth, worth checking out as homework afterwards. And basically, the way, the way the whole dialogue goes 
And, and I've no idea, by the way, whether this is biologically correct. I did actually want to try this experiment, but my, my wife wouldn't let me try it at home. So, uh, <laughs> so I've, I've been forbidden. But, but the, you know, the dialogue goes that training fleas requires a glass jar with a lid. And the fleas are placed inside the jar and, lid, and the lid is placed on the jar and they're left undisturbed for three days. And then after three days, when you take the lid off the jar, the fleas will not jump out of the jar. In fact, they will never jump higher than the lid. Uh, and, and their offspring will automatically um, follow their example. And, and I just think there's a really powerful metaphor in there when you think about leadership. I said, I can't make the connection with PlayStation 2. But when you think about leadership, you know, in this scenario, uh, leaders, they make a change, they try and do something different, and they, and they stand back and they look at the fleas and they say, well, nothing's changed. They're not doing anything different. And, and the problem in this situation is we blame the fleas because they've not jumped out of the jar. And now, in reality, and of course, in this metaphor, who's, who's the lid in this metaphor when you think about leaders and their teams? Yeah, I guess it's the, um, if you are the if you think of yourself as really the top of the hierarchy and you are the highest and you are kind of like that, I guess in this case, like plastic ceiling uh, for the organization, well, surprise, surprise, nobody's gonna jump higher. Absolutely, and you become, and it's not, it's not even to do with career progression, it's just to do with, you know, if it's always about your approach and your ideas and your way of thinking, you become the bottleneck for your entire organization. You know, everybody who reports into you, you become the bottleneck for the whole thing. So, yeah, in the analogy, the manager is the lid. And as I say, we might change our approach. We might say, I often talk about this when I'm doing leadership development work with people. So you might change your approach and then you might say, but they're not responding. <laughs> well, actually, they're just doing what they've been conditioned to do, sometimes by other people, because we've all inherited people conditioned by others. But at the end of the day, sometimes by us. And we have to recognize that if we've had people working in our team for some time and we can say, oh, well, they were conditioned by the previous manager, you can only hold on to that excuse for so long. Because in reality, what happens in time, your team become a reflection of you. And we have to ask ourselves as, as, as managers, are we training and developing people who own what they're doing. You know, future leaders, they don't have to be the next chief executive, but people who own what they're doing and whatever happens, if stuff goes wrong, they own it. They don't just pass it up the chain saying, not my problem. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we have to ask ourselves, are we training fleets? And there's too many managers out there who don't get rule number one, who are just training fleets. There's a lovely quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. She said that... Uh, a good, lead, a good leader inspires people to have confidence in the leader, but a great leader inspires people to have confidence in themselves. And that's what we're talking about here with the power of rule number one. And like I said, it's actually great news for the team and it's great news for the leader and it's the foundation for all things. But you were asking me about rule number two. I just have to pause there and say, what a great quote. Um, so th that was from Eleanor Roosevelt, you said? Yes, that's right, yeah. When I said about the, the fleas piece, what we have to recognize is any, any, any manager has to recognize that in time, you know, his or her team become a reflection of them. That, that's really, really key. And when we think about the environment we create, when we think about the people around us, the second principle we need to get our heads around is the fact that we cannot 
change anybody else. You, it just can't be done. You, you can't make somebody else change. You know, we start to think about, well, what are my options? So, well, I can use the old-fashioned carrot and stick. I can try and nudge them in different, whatever it is. But in reality, if you want somebody to fundamentally change what they're doing or to give a greater level of commitment, you can't make that happen. And when you are the kind of manager, when you're the kind of person where people work with you only because they have to, because they want to get paid at the end of the day, then, I mean, so obviously as an entrepreneur, you've not experienced this directly yourself, but think about people that are in your team or clients that you've worked with where you can see this happening elsewhere in the organization. When somebody works for somebody only because they have to, how much do they give? The bare minimum required. That's what happens every time. Now, now we could argue to say, well, actually, I do this because I believe in the importance of the, of the role and of my own personal integrity. And that's also true. But generally speaking, you know, if, if you spend a long period of time working for a manager and the only reason you work for them is because it's the job and there's no other reason, then you end up ultimately giving the bare minimum. That's what it tends to boil down to. Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one-on-one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one-on-one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice in management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single spaced font, you know, lots of text. There's a lot of pictures. It's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it. And the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app slash blog to download the definitive guide on -on one-on-ones. It's there for you. We hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. I think you're absolutely right. And I think like a lot of the, you know, like historically, I mean, work was, was like this, right? Like if you, you know, rewind, you know, before the days of knowledge work where, um, you know, uh, before knowledge work was prevalent, I mean, there was, uh, you know, work that you had to do, you did the work in the location and then you left and you did your hours and then you left. And I feel like it's uh, it's very interesting because like when you experience work that is not like that, you know, some of the some of these terms like work life balance, um, where it, where it sounds like you just need to balance one thing versus another, they start to become a little bit less. Again, in in my view, uh, it's more like work life harmony versus work life balance. If you can experience, uh, yeah, if you can experience like that type of work where again you're not doing it because it's it's a job and you're just doing the bare minimum to get a paycheck and then and then leave. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I think like that is um, certainly a way of operating. But I do think like as leaders, it is something that we can do that maybe we can make it less like that for, for others. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way you put that. Work-life harmony is something I, I might have to steal that because I get quite frustrated when people talk about, well, it's almost like this balance between work or life and work's a huge part of life. And I think harmony is the key phrase there. Um, but yeah, this, this whole idea of the environment that we can create, I, I think John, John, John Maxwell's really nailed this. He talks about five levels of leadership. And he says, level one leadership is where people work for you because they have to. And at that point, all you get is the minimum. 
you know, level two leadership is where they work for you because they like you. And, and it's not, you know, I'm not saying we all have to be the bestest buddies of the people in our team, but, you know, we've all worked for a boss we like and we've all worked for a boss we don't like. And there's a difference. You give more when there's a connection. Um, level three leadership, where, you, where the people working for you give even more, is where they follow you because you deliver. You've made a difference to the organization. You, know, you follow through on your commitments. Things are better because you're there. Level four leadership is where they follow you because you've helped them grow which links beautifully back to rule number one as well. You've, you've really, if you think of back to throughout your life, teachers, other entrepreneurs, you know, friends, relatives, whatever it is, people that you've worked with, there will be people that you can think of that had a real impact on you and really helped you grow. And if they picked up the phone now to say, Aiden, I need some help, you'd drop everything uh, and you run through a brick wall for them because they helped you become the person you are today. So already you're giving an even deeper level of commitment. But level five leadership he talks about is where people follow you because of who you are and what you represent. And that's where you know, people will literally work for you with blood, sweat and tears. And it's, it's not manipulation. You know, they're choosing to do this because they believe in what you believe in and they believe in who you are. And what, what that does is it brings us, you know, and of course, moving from one level to the next, you can't just press a button and say, well, Aidan, it's about time you move from level two to level three, please. I'd like a bit more commitment from you. You can't do that to them. It's their choice to give more than the bare minimum. Um, and that's rule number one. It's not about you. It's about them. But as we work our way through these different levels, when you come to level five, you, you realize that, well, the only thing that I can change, or you tell me, what's, what's the only thing that I can change to influence their choice to follow me? I mean, the only thing that's under your full control is uh, what you do. Yeah, that's fundamental. And that, that's what brings us face to face with rule number two. Because if rule number one says it's not about you, it's not about your ego, your ideas or your solutions or your way of doing things. Rule number two looks at this whole thing from a completely different perspective and says, you know, ultimately, people will follow you because of who you are and what you represent. You can't change anybody else's behavior. You can only change your own. So what that recognizes, if I want a different response from other people, I've got to work on myself, which is why rule number two says it's only about you. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the two sit in a really powerful juxtaposition. They're two very different statements. But when we realize it's only about us, only the only thing we can do is change our behavior to get a different response from others. I'll, I'll give you another quote. Here's a favorite one of mine. This is a Nelson Mandela quote. I could not change others until I changed myself. You know, that, that's the essence of rule number two. If we stop waiting for everybody around us to get their act together and start cleaning up our own act, that's what leadership is all about. If we stop waiting for you know, our other half to get their act together and start sorting ourselves out. That's what leadership is all about. You know, these principles, they're about who you are. So they cut across leadership into life. You, know, you could talk about these as two rules of life, if you like. You know, it's not about you and it's only about you. But when we bring these two things together, it, it creates such a powerful basis for how we lead. Everything else with it falls into place. And I, I don't... You hear a lot of people talking about this model of leadership and that model and this, this skill set and this tool. And they're all valid, but they're all meaningless without anything to actually sit inside. And I would argue that 
you know, all of the stuff. So, so you, you know, yeah, I know. Um, uh, so Fellow is an app, isn't it? That, 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 that's sort of available um, uh, for, for managers and for their teams. If you think of whatever model or skill or theory that we might be applying in any scenario, that's all software. That's fundamentally what it is. But the two rules of leadership, they're your operating system. And everything, once you've got the operating system right, then you can load the software. But if you haven't got the operating system, you're wasting your time. And, and, and everything is just, just pointless and meaningless. And, and you can come across managers that are trying to be super managers. And they're trying to apply this technique and that technique and this tool and this idea. But they just haven't got rule number one and rule number two. And nothing shifts if you haven't got those two fundamental rules. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's super powerful, and I hundred percent agree that there is. Um, it, it's almost like you have to start with these belief systems, and if you can start with with that, you know, you can implement tactics, and and that's fine. But if you if you don't have like the fundamental right beliefs from the from the get go, then I mean, tactics aren't really going to help. Uh, maybe give you some short term gains, but you're always following a playbook. But if you just come from a place of just understanding some of the simple truths. I'm, I am a, I'm a big believer in simple truths. I don't think you need to know a lot of things. I think you need to know some very few important things. And if you know those, then, then you'll be all right. This is, this is super powerful. I think the, um, uh, this is something that like, uh, I think people can get a lot from. I did want to ask you about one more thing, which is this concept of goal setting. Um, and we are shifting gears a little bit, um, but I but I wanted to ask because like this is a thing that you know we as leaders um, should help with uh, both for ourselves obviously rule number two, and of course uh, maybe aid others uh, rule number one. So um, what are your thoughts on goal setting and you know why people may may not get it right? And it's funny, isn't it? Because if, if we think back to goals that, that many of us have set over the years and goals that organizations set or you know the classic uh, you know new year's resolutions isn't it so uh you know, most of which are a dim and distant memory by the end of january there there is a fundamental problem with goal setting um as a, as a standard practice if you like and the one thing we're really missing is clarity because too often we, we head off with ideas that you know we think we've got the idea we think we know what it actually is uh, and we never really get it off the starting blocks. And, and one of the things that I believe passionately is that clarity is, uh, is the most powerful thing that we can have when we're really setting off. And in fact, if you've got real clarity, then you're already halfway there to achieving your goal. Where most people fall down is they don't get real clarity. Now, actually, I ran, I ran a webinar last month called Clarity is Power. Uh, and if anybody wants to get in touch, then we can sort out details for a recording if anybody wants to actually see that. But we go through some fundamental questions because clarity is all about asking the right questions. You know, there's kind of three stages that you go through. The first one is to define it. And, and the questions that we look at when you're defining it, they're not that complicated, but too often they get skipped. You know, first one is why. Why are we doing it? Why should anybody care? You know, you know the, the second one is, well, well who? You know, who's it for and what's in it for them? You know, the third question that goes with it is, so what exactly do we want? What is our end product? What will we have in our hands at the end of it? 
Uh, and uh, and then then the fourth question that goes with this is how will we know we've succeeded? And that question is the one that's perhaps missed the most is how will we know we've arrived when we've got to the end point, we've got to the destination? Because you've got to be really, really crystal clear on this. And the goals that get those things right really start to shift. But there's, there's, there's a number of questions. I would say there's probably nine key questions. So I'll dive through them super fast. Next question I would really dive into is, where are you now compared to where you want to be? Too often, when we're setting goals and we're trying to create organizational alignment, we, we paint this wonderful picture of where we're going and, and we think everybody should be super excited about that. And often they are, but stuff still doesn't happen because we haven't got everybody on the same page as to where we are now. It's a bit like sat-nav. You know, I can put in my destination in sat-nav, but if I can't pick up a GPS signal and find out where I am now, it's not helping me. I can't work out a route. So too often when it comes to creating a shift in goals, we focus on where we want to be, but we don't get to grips and get everybody aligned and on the same page as to where we are now. Now, when we've done those five key questions, there's some checks that we can run. That there isn't really time for us to go into now in terms of what we've got. But what we then need to shift to is to start thinking about, okay, so the, you know, within this stage of understanding where we are now, we, we, I kind of call this the debug stage. You know, get everyone on the same page and identify what's holding you back. Because usually whatever you've got in the current reality, there's a reason you've got it. There's a positive byproduct. And until you get to grips with what, you know, what the people you need to change or you will actually have to give up in order to get what you want and find another way to deal with that, then it's like driving with the brakes on. You know, you kind of want it, you know where you want to get to, but you still got the brakes on. Uh, and of course, with that, then the, the, you know, question seven is all about really understanding in advance, what are the barriers that are getting in the way and how you could work beyond that. But the last two, and I, I'm conscious I'm, I'm rattling through fast because we're struggling for time, aren't we? So is the, 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 the eighth question I would ask is what's already working well? Because too often people kind of rip up and start again and think, oh, it's all rubbish. You need to start all over. And usually what you want already exists. It might not be consistent. It might be in pockets. It might be in a different part of the organization. But really get to grips with what's already working well, because you will go far faster and far further if you build on that rather than just trying to start from scratch every time and, and constantly fixate on what you think is broken. And that's a really important mindset to this. And that comes really nicely in with rule number one. And then the last one is all about, you know, how will you actually know you're making progress on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I can set the end point. I can set the goal. I've got really clear success criteria. I've done all the other stuff. I've got really good questions in mind, but actually what really matters is what am I doing day by day by day by day? And it's really about understanding the right measures to drive on a daily basis. Not stuff that I can measure monthly, not stuff I can measure quarterly, but stuff I can effectively measure daily or weekly that allows me and the team to know we're doing the right stuff. We're on this. We're all over it. It's happening. But the catch is, and we were talking about this before, before we started, the catch with this is you can't do that with 15, 20 different goals. You know, we operate in a whirlwind where the stuff going round and round and round, just keeping the shop open is a killer at times. And we need to recognize that if we're really going to drive stuff and make stuff happen, we need to focus right down 
on a small number of significant changes. Nail those and then move on to the next thing. You know, and a, and a really common failure mode that I'm working with the senior leaders where they, they've got 15 priorities. And when 15 things are a priority, nothing is a priority and nothing is what happens. So just, just, you know, just some very quick whistle-stop tour through. You could spend a lot of time on that uh, working through it, and, but they're really, really powerful questions, really worth getting to grips with. But possibly my favourite one is that simple one about how will you know you're making progress on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis? And if you've really nailed that and link it to all the other stuff, the progress just comes. That's awesome. Those are great questions. And so these are on your website. So they're not on my website. Um, I, um, I've got a, a, the recording for the, the um, for the webinar. If you just, my email is dead easy to remember. It's peter at peterranderton.com. Uh, and somebody will pick that up and uh, we can send you the details. Of- okay, so now you're going to get a lot of emails. <laughs> and we'll, we'll put it in the, uh, maybe we'll, maybe not, we'll, we'll do the, we'll put it in the show notes, but put it as like use words as opposed to an at sign and, and try to make the, the spam bots uh, not, not access it too, too easily. Uh, but, you know, you and I were, were chatting and uh, really enjoyed this conversation. And you even offered that you might uh, talk to a few, like if, if there's some people in the audience and uh, they want to do a coffee chat, uh, you'd be open to, to getting some requests for those that you, do I have it like, you make some room open in your calendar from time to time to uh, have some random copy, co- coffee chats with uh, super managers out there. Yeah, I've had some really fascinating conversations and I love doing it. So I, I make eight slots available a month. So they're 45 minute slots. And, uh, you know, at some point I've got a calendar link for that, actually, which we could probably put in the meeting notes. OK, I'm, I'm warning you, you're going to get a lot. <laughs> OK, maybe, maybe I need to think about this. Yeah, then. Maybe we should throttle it a little bit. But uh, but no, this is awesome. I mean, I think like um, I think anyone listening to this conversation will be tempted to send you a note. No, that would be great. I mean, I guess what I would say about this is that in terms of who I the 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 context in which to contact me would be if you're a senior leader in an organization, that would be where it makes the most sense to have, to have a virtual coffee. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, Peter, we've talked about so many things. I mean, we started with talking about NLP, which I'm uh, always fascinated with. And of course the two rules, it's, uh, it's, it's not about you and it's only about you. And we talked about goal setting um, and the nine questions that you can ask and uh, this has been super insightful. Uh, one of the questions that we like to ask uh, all of the guests on the show is for all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft. Uh, are there any final tips, tricks, or words of wisdom that you would leave them with? Oh, do you know what? There are so many. I mean, uh, let me, I'm going to limit myself to three, if that's okay. So the first one, the first one really to, to, to get your head around is the fact that Leadership is not easy, but it is simple. And, you know, just strip away all the noise and bring everything back to those two rules. That's the first thing I would say. Um, The second thing I would say, actually, we touched on this with the goal setting piece. Spend more time focusing on what's right rather than what's wrong and build it and extend it out. Too often we think that it's about fixing the things that are wrong. I recognize that's a part of the role 
you know, we all need to be having the tough conversations. That's a really important part of being a super manager, but spend more time building what's right. That would be the second thing I would say. And then the third thing I would say is give yourself a break because there is no such thing as the perfect leader. They, they don't exist. Um, you know, everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody at some point is going to do something that's going to cause a problem for somebody else, that's going to you know, have an, an adverse impact on somebody else in the organization. It happens for all of us, even the very, very best managers that will happen. And 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 that's where I would I kind of would end to say, look, there is no such thing as the perfect leader, but the next best thing is the leader who really gets and applies rule number one and rule number two. Peter, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you for inviting me on, Aiden. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.